0: The Debatable Podcast is available at debatablepodcast.tumblr.com and iTunes. On Twitter we are DebatablePod and I am Mr. Greggles. M-I-S-T-E-R G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S M I S T R G R E G G L E S. I also have another podcast called All the Pieces Matter that I co-host with Fernando Madrigal. All the Pieces Matter is a retrospective podcast on HBO's The Wire. We are located on iTunes as well and wirepod.tumblr.com On Twitter we are wire underscore podcast and Both the Debatable Podcast and All the Pieces Matter are available on actionagogo.com. So go check out those sites, give us feedback, send us questions and comments, and enjoy today's show.
1: Something's changed It ain't hard to define Just he's got himself a girl And I wanna make her mine And she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving with that body I just know it And he's holding You know, I feel so dirty when they start talking cute I wanna tell her that I love her, but the point is probably moot Cause she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving him with that body, I just know it And he's holding her in his arms late, late at night (laughs)
0: uh i'm excited to talk about this man because i mean inherent vice is is coming up next week it is well this week actually (laughs) um
2: and Uh, it's very limited release at first though i don't think i'm gonna be able to see it in a theater near me until like january 9th true
0: oh yeah yeah that's right I even yeah. think about that. Yeah. So really, this podcast is coming out way, way gonna... beyond yeah, <laughs> most people's ability to see Inherent Vice.
2: But people will be talking about Inherent Vice, so we're getting in on the conversation early. Right.
0: And when they think of Inherent Vice, they think, hey, I want to hear two guys talk about Boogie Nights and The
2: Master. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's where that's where our minds are at. Um, for people who don't know, I guess we should probably give them a a frame of reference. Joe's been on the podcast before, uh, but uh, Joe, you you are a uh, young cinephile and filmmaker yourself, correct?
2: Correct. I am a writer, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a nuclear physicist and theoretical <laughs> philosopher, but above all, I am a man, hopelessly a inquisitive man just like you. <laughs> How's that pay? <laughs> not, not, at not nearly as much as probably. I would like. <laughs>
0: probably not. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think one of the things that we talked about and, and we're going to talk about uh, another topic from that last podcast that we uh, did together, just the, the solo bolo you and me did. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Pulp Fiction being a big influence in your life. Yeah, but I think that I could could I make the argument that also uh, P. T. Anderson's Boogie Nights <clears throat> did the same.
2: Uh, it did. Uh, weirdly, Boogie Nights came later for me. Okay. I saw I saw Boogie Nights like probably three or four years after I saw Pulp Fiction. Gotcha. If there if there's any. PTA film that was as much of an an early influence for me as Pulp Fiction was, that would be Magnolia.
0: Gotcha. So was yeah. it? that was the first one you saw?
2: Yeah, that was the first one I saw. And then I kind of, I was all over the place with him after that. I think I actually saw Punch Drunk Love before Boogie Nights as well. Gotcha. Yeah. I
0: think that it's interesting um, coming to, to P.T. Anderson because that's a dude that, I think Boogie Nights was the first movie that I saw of his. Mm-hmm. And um, Kind of seeing where he's come from, like you know the the his last movie, The Master, and um, even even Inherent Vice, early early news about that, early reviews of that.
2: It I, seems like he's veering far more toward the experimental than yeah. he did with his first five films, which were which had their moments, but were mostly extremely narrative driven.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and also he had kind of a bad moniker of, of being a, an Altman. Uh, you know, uh, um, a protege or an Altman uh, type uh, reflection, kind of right. in the way that Tarantino was a, was accused of being a Scorsese reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's oh. interesting. I, I, before I got into watching Boogie Nights for this podcast that we're doing, I, I rewatched Hard uh, Eight. Um, or, I lo- I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, or Sydney for for the people, the hardcores that know that it should have been called Sydney.
2: Yeah, P- PTA prefers Sydney. I sure. Like, if I can be completely honest with you, I have always held that Heart 8 is a better, catchier title. I feel but you. But that's you, you. neither here nor there.
0: I feel you. <laughs> um, I think that the interesting thing about that, besides just the fantastic performances in there, is that it feels very much like a really hungry independent
2: film. And, and it's so assured. Yeah. Just the first Absolutely. time out. Like, uh, you can tell... His influences are in place. You can tell he's been studying Scorsese. He's been studying Melville, mm-hmm. and this and this movie is like it's so it's such an economic script, and it's so not showy in comparison right. to some of the stuff he would do in Boogie Nights and Magnolia. It just works. He he knew exactly what he was going for in that film.
0: Right, and well, part of that is kind of also. I feel like I remember him either talking about it in the commentary or in in some sort of um, uh, interview that. He was very much of the mindset, if you put two people in a diner uh, with cigarettes and coffee and have them talk, you can get a scene out of it.
2: Right, and I feel and, like and doesn't. Heart Eight actually come from a short film he made yeah. entitled "Coffee and Cigarettes." Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's true. I mean, like it's um for anybody who's a fan of 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 P. T. Anderson of of seventies uh, film of French New Wave and and even the independent film scene, I Kevin Smith and all that. These yeah. heavy dialogue type scenes that kind of come out of just putting two people in a in a place and letting them, kind of. Discover the conversation, just like a podcast. Even just discover the conversation as it right, comes along.
2: Right, right. VTA was making visual podcasts <laughs> he before we started. But I, he did I, it much more stylish. I
0: think of him as the first visual podcaster. That's what it was. <laughs>
2: That's way great. beyond his
0: time totally. but uh as i'm watching yeah heart eight is very much uh you know it has all these little bits of flair that will come uh become more prevalent in boogie nights and then down the road uh with uh with um punch Drunk love and and uh there will be blood and all that but it's, it's, um, it's,
2: it's so much smaller in scale too absolutely you know, subsequent films. absolutely
0: and and probably the thing that i always think of when i see that movie besides the great uh performances from uh, from Hall and and Riley and and Sam Jackson. Yeah, um, Sam, Jackson's terrific. Phil, Phil Seymour Hoffman is <laughs> is a scene stealer even that yeah. early.
2: <laughs> it's so like I was just thinking about this recently, like while watching The Master, and uh, he's obviously in mocking Jay right now as mm-hmm. well. Nobody does sudden volatile bursts of anger as well as (laughs) Philip Seymour (laughs) Hoffman did yeah
0: it's very true man
2: (laughs) yeah because like it's there in heart eight there are a couple moments in the master the pig fuck scene yeah yeah. punch drunk love yeah Yeah. and have have you seen Mockingjay yet are you a fan of those movies I
0: I I can I can take him or leave him but I I definitely like him
2: Okay, Mockingjay is worth seeing. If only for... There's one scene, okay, there's uh, a running thing in it, is, like, the rebels are making these, like, PSAs to let people know what's going on, how nefarious and evil the capital is, and so on and so forth. Right. And uh, Katniss is uh, doing her first one, and she's being directed by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and the Julianne Moore character. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise is she just got out of a battle, and she is telling like her soldiers who are like the audience watching this PSA, like, uh, how desperate their situation is. Right. And like she comes in, she does her first take, and it's not very confident. Katniss <laughs> is not an actress. Like as soon as she finishes, you hear like from off screen Philip Seymour Hoffman shout,
1: You've just got out of battle.
2: <laughs> and I died laughing. It's such a classic moment. <laughs> and it's truly indicative of like why we loved Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. RIP, by the way. Yeah.
0: RIP. He, de- he could deliver it. I think that it's interesting to him too because he had. This kind of a dichotomy of of roles he was known for, you know, being kind of a, a sniveling kind of asshole douchebag in a lot of his early work.
2: A sniveling asshole douche, douchebag. He also played a sad sack like nobody yes, else. absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely. But then, yeah, his his uh, his latter career before his death is just it's superb. It's one great performance after Master,
2: another. Master Sin New York, before mm-hmm. the devil knows you're dead, just yeah. sterling stuff. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But um, the uh, I. I kind of teased it at the beginning of this podcast that we were going to be talking about two things from from the original solo podcast that we did before. And, and one of those other uh, things that we talked about was a, a, a grand statement, a masterpiece, uh, Michael Bay's uh, Transformers 4. <laughs> yes. And uh, from, <laughs> from Transformers <laughs> 4, I believe, one of the greatest American actors, Mark Wahlberg, um, but, you know, showed himself finally. You know, he he finally mm-hmm. had some some scenery to chew. He finally he, had some. He
2: fa- he finally had something to work with. <laughs> exactly. You know, been slumming it for like twenty years. Yes. Basketball diaries, boogie yes. nights, whatever. I know. Fuck that I know. shit. I know. I know. Age needed, of extinction. is needed, what it was all. He needed
0: to. the spotlight. He needed to. <laughs> he needed to impress <laughs> some people. <laughs> Get them on, uh, on Optimus Prime's uh, all, level. All, all
2: that dude needed was some robots to back him exactly. up. Exactly. Okay. So let's. And uh, say hello to his mother for him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, let's talk about 1997's Boogie Nights. Okay. So, Mark when, Wahlberg. Okay. Let's, let's talk about Mark Wahlberg right off the bat. Okay. okay. I think that um, of all the performances he's done, Mm-hmm. and of all the movies he's been in i think Boogie Nights might be my favorite
2: i would probably agree with that it's definitely the most how do i want to put this he he gets to sh- he's given he's he in Boogie Nights he's given a character where he gets to show so many different sides of himself yeah and like there are great Mark Wahlberg performances, such as The Departed and uh-huh. probably some other things, where he doesn't get to do that. He's a scene stealer, but yes. he, does, he doesn't get to delve deeply into a character in the way he does in Boogie Nights. It's
0: really kind of um, just you know, a weird anomaly with Wahlberg, because I think more than any other actor that I can think of, he is made or broken by the director he works with.
2: Absolutely. So
0: if he works with P.T. Anderson, if he works with Scorsese, if he works it, with David O. Russell. David
2: O. Russell, definitely. Yeah. They're, they're going to get the goods out of him, whereas if he's left stranded with a Michael Bay or,
1: I don't which know. Is,
0: <laughs> which is, again, kind of weird, too, because I think Pain and Gain that he did with Michael Bay, that that performance in there is is quite good, but I think it's quite good because it's so Dirk Diggler-esque.
2: It, it is Dirk Diggler esque. It's like it's like Dirk Diggler without the depth, though. Yeah. Because it it's is. like it's like Dirk Diggler stripped down to just the pulsating masculinity. Yeah,
0: and the idiocy. Yeah,
2: yeah and idiocy. <laughs> yeah. Because Dirk Dirk Diggler, let, let's—he's not a very smart person, is no, he? No,
0: no. In fact, uh, Boogie Nights could be—it could be said about Boogie Nights that it is not about intelligent people. Right. It's about people kind of trying the best that they can with what they have
2: yeah it's about people trying to make their way in like oh, in, in very unlikely ways in the best way they know how which isn't necessarily the best way right
0: yeah. it really like totes this line because there's this you know there's the thing of, of, of uh, you know kind of um, I think as far as pornography has been kind of depicted, <clears throat> Um it's always skirted this line of being really lurid and not mm. something that's mainstream. Even when it was mainstream in the 70s, it was not as mainstream as fucking Cleopatra, you know what I mean?
2: Right. And and that that's such an impressive thing about this movie because I think it straddles that line really well between romanticizing it and condemning it.
0: Sure. Yeah. I can see that. But I mean from the from the standpoint of of being um Here's my problem, and, and, and stay with me. I, I, I'm going to make a, a roundabout way to make a point. Okay. So Brian De Palma, who yeah. is widely regarded in many ways uh, it, it, by two camps. Uh, one camp um, loves him and thinks of him as just, you know.
2: He's the wild man of the cinema. Yeah, yeah. okay,
0: I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. The other side is that he is unrepentantly ripping off Hitchcock at every turn.
2: But, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: homaging, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I, like <laughs> I, I got to say, if you if you watch any, if you watch maybe three or four or five of De Palma's films and you get a sense of the type of director he is, mm-hmm. he always, da- it, it always dawned on me, it always made me feel like his perception of women was that he was a very shy, nerdy, film geek that part of the reason he got into films is to um depict sex and see women naked
2: right <laughs> i get that feeling <laughs> yeah i mean from the from the opening sequence of carrie forward sure like, sure yeah. <laughs>
0: or it's, yeah or uh what's what's the movie with michael uh, kane um um to kill just
2: oh, yeah, to I've, kill i haven't seen that
0: but, but the reason i bring it up is because brian de palma definitely comes off like this this film geek that it's almost on the surface you you can tell when he's um tr- he, he's like a, an ex- a, an excited kid who has this toy mm. and he has this ability to hire an actress to do full frontal nudity and he's excited about it. Right. And uh so
2: so, so in, in in terms of De Palma's body of work the films <laughs> the films he ma- was that a fun.
0: <laughs> it was very good. It was the, very good.
2: The, the films he makes um uh, he he's either depending on what story it is, he's either using it as an excuse to revel in the style yeah. and what, he, what he's allowed to show right. on, his, on a cinema screen, or he actually has a story to tell. Yeah. Right.
0: And it's problematic, too, because I think that, I mean, again, I think that there are people that absolutely love and, and don't call it a guilty pleasure at all. I don't personally think that the movie Body Double is quite good but a lot of people love that movie
2: that's a fun movie <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're in the mindset for it if you're in the,
0: yeah if you're in the <laughs> mindset for it if you're in the mood yeah. for it but yeah. i remember it,
2: b- b- because it's obvious he's having fun with that one right it's so, it's so steeped in hitchcock homages that you know he's going crazy filming this thing whereas right. a few years earlier he made a movie with john lithgow called obsession yeah, yeah. that was just as much of a hitchcock ripoff but he was very self serious about it yeah. and that one wasn't fun. Yeah. So it, it just depends on how on how excited he seems. I think that Absolutely. translates very much to an audience.
0: Absolutely. But with, with a movie like Body Double, I feel like the thing that came to the forefront that he used to talk about, I know that he especially talked about it on the DVD extras for that, was that um, he really thought at the time to get the, ty- the type of sex and the type of um, nudity that he wanted in the movie, he was going to have, have to hire a porn actress. Yeah. Um, it was just no, There was no mainstream Hollywood actress that was going to do that type of sexually explicit role. Yeah and he gets Melanie Griffith Then, of course you know that kind of hey. like exploded her career. Right. But is, um it <laughs> but it's so weird that it, in that time I, I'm talking maybe what is it like maybe 15 years later mm. we have a movie that is uh, headlined for the <laughs> most part by well-known actors and actresses. Right. Even in the in even in the independent scene Julianne Moore I mean come on. Mm.
2: Who I mean she's known for getting naked that's she is for
0: most for most movies especially yeah. Altman movies yeah, I mean
2: shortcuts. Totally. yeah that's the that's the, the Altman cut. Match the curtains we all saw it
0: <laughs> that's what this podcast is really about we're going to be talking about that most of the time yes the uh, the, the the red fire beneath the dress but um,
2: I like that better <laughs> But...
0: So, so this is the thing. This is the, the frame of reference. I came into um, Boogie Nights revisiting it. Because obviously when I saw it originally, and I did see this movie with my mother in the theater oh, wow. when I was 14 years old. Oh, um, man, that's incredible. And she was, she was totally cool with it, by the way. She was great. It, yeah, that, my, that, my mother was great kicks, with it.
2: That kicks ass. Yeah. No awkwardness.
0: <laughs> no awkwardness at no all. all. It, it's funny. I also saw, um, I also saw uh, Color of Night with Bruce Willis. With her and that that's also a very sexually explicit movie, but um, nonetheless, what was I talking about? So so Boogie Nights is revisiting it. I'm like thinking, okay, it is really quite special that this movie is made and that it's it's part um, a a an expose of, of the porn industry in its height and then its fall, and um, it's also an, a kind of a part a biography of of john Holmes almost um, who was probably the most recognizable name that came out of 70s uh porn as far as males are concerned and it, it dawned on me I'm like it's so interesting it, really if you look at it how many male actors we know from that industry versus how many female actors actresses we know from that industry and it's like you you might know 20 or 30 actresses to a male actor there's very few right. because so many of them are not they're not headliners in that industry in that industry they are paid less unless they do gay porn mm-hmm. they are used really just for their tools if you will <laughs> they're well put. Well, yeah, for, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the The actresses, uh, they,
2: the, they, the, the the actor's presence is more functional, whereas the actress's presence—that's the actual draw for what's being. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Considering the industry is much like video games in its early heyday, uh, could be accused of that. That porn directed is directed more toward males. Exactly. Directed yeah. towards males. So the 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 exploitation, the um the the money that's made on porn when it was. Filmed or when it was on videotape, uh, now on the internet, all of it is really based around female performers. Yep. So, what did you think of Boogie Nights when you first saw it? Was it something that really, you know, you blew, it blew you away, or
2: uh, I, I loved the movie the first time I saw it. I think it took I think it took a couple of viewings of it for me to really. Uh, T- for me to cotton to it in the same way I cotton to Magnolia, Yep. And, and I'm not sure why that is. I can tell you what the the very thing that led me to rewatching it in the future was after that first viewing. The sequence that did grab me and got me kind of obsessed with it was the Rahad Jackson Sister Christian drug deal sequence at Absolutely. the end, which uh, I actually talked about on uh, our friend Eric's Making the Scene podcast yeah. earlier this year, which should be out soon.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect scene I think that if
2: you need it is is a perfect scene I don't think there's ever been a better marriage of visuals (laughs) and music I don't think it's such in that 10 minutes there is such a meticulous and perfect build of intensity and you're you're seeing it from like four or five different perspectives and they're all just every bit of that scene is fine-tuned to make you a nervous wreck
0: oh my god I mean the fucking kid with with the firecrackers
2: yeah exactly
0: like <laughs> the Asian love child with the firecrackers is there? It's really Named there. Cosmo. <laughs> named Cosmo. Yeah. That's basically there to exactly to make you nervous or to to throw you off kilter and make you uncomfortable in the scene because not only are, is the tension and the suspense up that they're trying to dupe this drug dealer into taking baking soda and but try to he, get but
2: but he's fucking insane. Yeah. And, and in the background, lurking constantly, this huge bodyguard with this huge gun. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Like, like this, we all know it's inevitable. This is going downhill. It's just a matter of when it goes downhill and probably what song is playing while it goes downhill. Yeah, <laughs>
0: it's basically the stakes is high, is what I'm hearing. The stakes,
2: the, the stakes were super high. <laughs> I was shaking when I when that sequence ended the first time.
0: There are, you know, I think that what makes a movie uh, memorable, at least in the mainstream consciousness, or if it has a scene like this, is if it does have pop music that absolutely as soon as you hear it it reminds you of the scene and there is no time in the past 20 years that i have not heard sister christian (laughs) on the radio and it has been followed by jesse's girl it has to be
2: it has to be yeah and then jesse's girl has to be followed by 99 love has has to be yeah
0: Every time I've listened to the radio. It's a perfect
2: trilogy. Uh, Music in a film is such a perfect emotional shortcut, and that sounds reductive, but I don't mean it to be, Mm -hmm. because when a particular song is used in a particular way, uh, Quentin Tarantino said this a million times, I'm going to steal from him right now. It is just about the most cinematic and amazing thing you can do. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. That that marriage is is not to be underplayed. I mean, music and film and editing... All absolutely of it needs to work but i mean that scene that, that that shot on Wahlberg when he's thinking and he's got the headache and it's just this long shot
2: and it, it holds on him and you yeah, it's you, fantastic. you become so tuned in to his entire thought process yeah. there there there's even there's actually a shot in the master that i think is similar it doesn't hold for that long but it's when it's toward the end when Uh, Lancaster is giving another one of his presentations and Mm -hmm. he mentions for the first time that he figured out that laughter was the key to their processing
0: Right, right,
2: right thing and like it's they're holding on Joaquin Phoenix and you can tell, this is right before he makes his little disappearance toward the end of the movie and you can just see it on his face like it's starting to click yeah, he is just making this <laughs> up as he goes along. <laughs>
0: that's a uh, yeah. That's a movie that. Well, we're gonna get into it. This we'll is, get that, into that's it. That's a yeah. movie that, that <laughs> I have a lot of conversa- a lot of conversations about, a lot of questions about.
2: Yeah. Oh, me too me too i have have more questions than answers with that movie which i think is kind of the point
0: yeah it's also how i feel about magnolia but we will talk about it um
2: we'll get to it yeah
0: the climax and fall of rome the climax and i mean that there's gonna be a lot of puns in this podcast (laughs) okay it's gonna be a lot of puns and and the climax and fall of rome is really really what boogie nice is about i think Mm -hmm. um the carefree 70s uh, porn film as, as being kind of like depicted as art as Vers- as real versus, film
2: versus the mainstream sellout exactly. video 80s
0: exactly oh yeah. the, the mass produced you know yeah.
2: making film history on videotape. exactly <laughs> now now that that's obviously a huge running theme in the movie is is there also a parallel there with the actual non-porn film industry it's good, good. It's a good question.
0: I think. Uh, it, th- I think always. Typically, when we talk about uh, technology, uh, that's kind of the well-known um, push of most technologies. Why did VHS beat out Beta? Why did, in a way, why did DVD beat out? Um, uh, VHS Laser and then and then Blu-ray. Why did it beat out HD DVD? Every single right. one of those aspects has a lot of who who are the distributors, who are the money men behind it, and but who are they
2: selling to? And
0: who are they selling to? But where is the technology? Um, wh- what 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 types of media is that technology supporting? And most often. Uh, since most people don't have film projectors in their homes anymore, even then, even back in the fifties and sixties, yeah. um, the convenience of the videotape convenience. won out
2: over anything else. Exactly, which, which is exactly what's happening. I mean, it's still happening right now. The convenience of being able to stream something online Absolutely. is is probably going to kill physical media. Eventually. Absolutely.
0: Well, in a way, I mean, I'm glad you said that because the internet is the next part of that of that puzzle, and yeah. and there are people that have completely taken the medium out of their let's be honest they their porn watching their porn yeah. watching is completely streaming it's completely downloading it's completely free they they steal it.
2: Yeah, it's all internet-based, it's free, and most of all, it's private. It is private. You clear your history, and it's done. There's no no Playboys or VHS tapes under your bed. No, no.
0: It's It's incognito mode is what you do.
2: Yeah, you open up a private tab in Google Chrome, (laughs) and you're set for at least 15
0: minutes. (laughs) (laughs) 15 minutes? Man, that's forever for you, man. (laughs) But uh, no, that's that's consistently what it is. And it's always interesting to go back to this because obviously PT Anderson and uh, hearing stories about his father and everything and, and living in Los Angeles. This was a big thing. That uh, he was he was kind of infatuated with the the porn industry, and um, I don't think that you can like there is I, I remember you know there were times still getting VHS uh, porn when when you know I was still a teenager and whatever, and it's just not something that that people even do anymore you would go to tower records and you would pay 30 or 40 dollars for one vhs (laughs) Holy shit! that would be luckily hopefully maybe two hours something
2: you liked (laughs) (laughs) exactly hopefully it did it for you
0: you didn't read up reviews on this
2: that had to have been like a huge monetary risk for the the average porn consumer Mm -hmm. i mean because like what if you buy it and you're just like huh Can't can't get it up today.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And on top of that, the worst part is that, let's be honest, Mm -hmm. the quality control on porn VHSs wasn't the best.
2: Oh, I'm sure there were so (laughs) many booms in the frames. (laughs) And I'm not just talking about this.
0: <laughs> I'm talking about bad tracking. I'm talking about bad uh, bad audio. <laughs> you,
2: you, you're you're buying a factory VHS tape, but it's actually like fourth generation bullshit. That's what I mean. Pressed you, in a fucking lab in the middle wh- of nowhere. That's what I mean. Oklahoma.
0: <laughs> that's what I mean. Basically, you're getting a fourth generation Xerox copy of
2: a copy of a
0: copy <laughs> that they're going to throw in a box and send to Tower Records, man.
2: That's incredible. I'm glad we don't live in that world. Anymore. <laughs> Do you miss it? Do you miss the risk? Wasn't it a little more it exciting was a, when, you, w- when you weren't sure what you were getting? It
0: was exciting. It was a, It was also exciting because of the time of your life. You know, you're you're 18 or 17 or whatever. And it's just like getting alcohol, honestly. You're, you're, you got yeah. that fear of being caught.
2: Mm-hmm. That which makes everything better. Ari had a whole song about it. Absolutely, exactly.
0: <laughs> but nowadays I mean any kid of any age can basically see bestiality porn. They don't even have to worry about it.
2: Yeah. If they want to. If
0: they, if they want to. Even if they don't want to, it might be sent right to their inbox. Who knows?
2: Yeah, it might it might be a learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're going into the veterinary industry and they need to know how like what the dangers involved are. Right. I'm getting it <laughs> so off track. No,
0: no. This is this is the, this is the goal. This is why That's I brought so cool. you on. Okay, good. Basically, but basically there is this I like that you said that it was a romanticism for this industry and for this this time period because obviously you get you get basically an excuse to have a grand, exuberant, epic kind of uh, um an ensemble cast and a a parallel upon parallel story of many different ups and downs
2: of many different lost souls just trying to make exactly (laughs) yeah can I ask you why
0: we never saw Don Cheadle's porn acting
2: oh man
0: you know Um, he's supposed to be an actor he even gets turned down for his bank loan for his own stereo store because of his pornographic acting and I can't tell you that we were ever that that was ever proven beyond our eyes
2: that he was a porn actor i I feel almost dumb saying this. I never realized that until just this moment, yeah like yeah. Like, like like what was his function in Jack Corner Productions exactly.
0: you don't like, even see him on the set. you don't what was he doing there? I think that they just brought him around for the for his country attitude, maybe Jack really had like you know this kid, he's I, gonna I, be I, all I, right.
2: Maybe he maybe he was like a uh, I'm just spitballing here. It's like a non-porn extra. Maybe
0: maybe. He, was,
2: maybe he was like the cowboy who leads the cowgirl to like the the buck and bronco in the back.
0: Or sure, something, sure. And
2: then sells her a stereo. That's gonna
0: be a lucrative career. He heard be a... somebody
2: say deals. Anyway,
0: <laughs> but I think uh, yeah no I I bring it up only to to say that Don Cheadle his part in this movie really is one of my favorite arcs really it is because i think that he goes he 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 has this this comic relief of being the most uncool black man you've ever met mm-hmm. uh with with his country uh, uh wear and playing country music to try to sell stereos right the <laughs> hi-fi high fidelity stereos yeah. and um the
2: first, yeah the first time you meet him after you see him in the club at the beginning it is kind of a pathetic reveal exactly exactly because <laughs> you were you were expecting so much more because he comes off well at he first. does he comes he off does. so well
0: he does but even even louis guzman is like really the country stuff really what are we doing here right. is this and your if, look and
2: if louis guzman is criticizing <laughs> him, <laughs> then you know you're a deep shit <laughs> and
0: even uh even becky barnett's like find a new look you know, right. <laughs> get out of here. Do this, but um, I think it, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about the ending of the movie. But as the arc goes, as much as Cheeto's involved, and he's he's uh, he's got some stupendous fucking scenes. Honestly, a great great uh, ability to to really um, to be the tentpole of the scene really he's 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 able to have a a real spotlight in that scene in the bank and then in the in the in the robbery of the donut store and everything
2: right which is it which is a terrific sequence it is
0: and it's again another really tense moment i think it's something that that uh forever traumatized my girlfriend who just saw (laughs) it out of the corner of her eye
2: yeah but uh it's so, it's so tense, and that's another thing that uh, PTA is so excels at so much is as much as Philip Seymour Hoffman excels at random bursts of anger, yeah. PTA excels at bursts of violence. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, it, and it's always so visceral and disturbing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that I thought that maybe as I rewatched it, I feel like he might have... I guess the argument could be made that he... Has the happiest ending with uh, Melora Walters, but right. um, you know, it's. I guess it's your. it guess it could be left up to perspective. Um, really, I guess the point of of Boogie Nights is to is to depict something kind of changing. Not really. Not necessarily completely falling into waste. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not. Um, it's not a, a, a terribly moralistic movie at the end of the day it's kind of um life goes on even when you reset life goes on these people who have hit the bottom of their barrel um Find some strength in the the pseudo family that they have.
2: Right, the 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 fa- the found family unit in yes. Boogie Nights is so important.
0: The Joss uh, Whedon, the most Joss exactly. Whedon thing.
2: It's so Joss Whedon. It is. Yeah. And the, weirdly, the master kind of is too. But we'll get to that. Right, right, right. Uh, the the closing sequence of Boogie Nights with the Beach Boys playing over it is so beautiful. Let me ask you something, though. Give it to me. Amidst all of these, like, happy interludes, you know, John C. Riley doing his magic, uh, uh, Don Cheadle's baby being born, etc., etc., we get uh, the Colonel being... (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not saying he didn't have it coming, but doesn't that feel ever so slightly out of place with the rest of this, like, incredibly upbeat sequence? Interesting.
0: you know, it, it could simply be uh, transposing um, the happiness that characters feel. that everybody the ha- gets out alive. Yeah, or even t- transposing that happiness to the viewer. Like, you're happy that this motherfucker who obviously was doing some pedophilic shit.
2: Yeah, and it's it's so interesting. This happens in Magnolia, too. It's so interesting. PTA is so... Is generally non-moralistic, but he right. has no tolerance for child molesters. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in this movie, the only person who truly gets judged is the colonel. In Magnolia, the only person who truly gets judged is Jimmy Gator, who was mm. another child molester.
0: Very true, and you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because that is the the one of the scenes that I talked about with Eric. Uh, on an upcoming episode of his his uh, making the scene podcast, we talked about Magnolia, his his favorite scene.
2: Awesome! That's, so that's awesome. Can't Jim, wait, to hear Jimmy
0: that. Jimmy Gator.
2: Yeah, let's let's <laughs> talk, let's talk about
0: his. You know, uh, th- the thing that I keep coming back to with P.T. Anderson, like any mm. great filmmaker that we talk about, is his company of actors, the people he yeah. continuously works with. We've already talked about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Obviously, yeah. Philip Baker Hall has a, another small part in this says uh gondoli is his name floyd, his name? Gondoli, floyd yeah. gondoli the mm-hmm. <laughs> the man with butter <laughs> butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. I'm a simple man.
2: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got William H. Macy. Absolutely.
0: John yeah. C. Riley.
2: Yeah.
0: Can I say that John I'll C. Riley and um Mark Wahlberg are probably my favorite duo in film history.
2: Is it because one of them looks like Han solo <laughs> <laughs> yes you figured it out yes. <laughs> but I mean they're the
0: way that they work off of each other's um, innocence and stupidity like there's so much of this movie okay so so much of the industry is about perception and so much of the industry like just like Jack Horner says he's talking about you know big dicks big tits all that it's right. about the perception but all of these people that are in here become um, uh, successful, I really, be, really think because they have this ability to bullshit their way through things. Mm. Um, Don Cheadle can bullshit his way, even though he loses the sale. But yeah. he, he has this way of bullshitting his way. Um,
2: uh, Jack Horner is very much the same way. Absolutely. He carries himself as a prestigious artistic director. Absolutely, but he's just making porn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and that's that's why the transition to video is such like adding <laughs> insult to injury for him because exactly. like the, the ego has been totally Oh, shattered.
0: absolutely. He's the David Lean of porn and he's <laughs> he's being told he's gonna be doing straight to Nobody video has stuff. shots these long <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's that's true. I mean John C. Riley and, and Mark Wahlberg are, are also these people that that want to be perceived even in their excess. You know, they want to be perceived as as something great. I love that Metaphorically speaking, they have this dick measuring contest about how much, you know, they can they can bench or how much they yeah. can lift and everything, and th- and that kind of strikes off this, this wonderful kind of like he's he's the best. John C. Riley is it's, the best sidekick.
2: I know it's it's like it's one of the original 90s bromances <laughs> in the making <bait laughs> it's great were they lying about how much they could bench were they just trying to top it each is. other it's good it's good
0: <laughs> and even more so the 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 chest uh, Rockwell uh, what, what was what was um oh, what was man. Wahlberg's name
2: uh uh Brent Brett
0: Brett something, something. oh man but they're they're like, you know, James Bond slash exploitation yeah. classic. Brocklanders. <laughs> Brock Brocklanders and Chess Rocco.
2: Yeah. So it's, perfect. Absolutely
0: perfect. What was um can I ask you besides the the grand scene with Alfred Molina and the um. the drug deal, what what arc or what character you really kind of picked up on?
2: Hmm. D- just one specifically? Yeah.
0: Was there one that really that really drives you back to this movie when you rewatch it? Uh, uh, an actor or uh, an arc that you think is it really makes the movie?
2: Um, I think I don't think this was the case when I was originally watching it as a teenager, but the older I get, the more I find things to relate to in the Dirk Diggler arc. Actually. Oh really? Like like I've been that. Because
0: you per- have a humongous penis.
2: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 13 inches i don't treat you gently but <laughs> i've been that person who finished high school in his case he dropped out but who finished high school and just kind of aimless dicking around for a while until i discovered that in college this whole other family of people who were interested in doing the things that i was doing in my right. case it was filmmaking in his case it was you know having sex and having <laughs> time doing drugs sure. but like it's let's let's be honest The parallel is there. It's almost the same thing, emotionally speaking. And I think the ups and downs that that character experiences, how, like, at first he's a little reserved and then he becomes welcomed and then he shoots up onto this high horse where he realizes he could be great and then his ego gets the best of him and that leads to his downfall. I, I, I find that very... I find that very personally applicable. I think yes. I have some of the same positive and negative tendencies as Dirk Diggler, and so the movie almost, in its own weird, sex-obsessed way, plays like a sort of a cautionary tale.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's true also with he- Heather Graham's character. Very much so. Very you much. You know, so. because she's a uh, she's basically alienated. From high school, I mean, sure, you could probably make a case that she's not necessarily, um, you know, gonna be valedictorian or an academic scholar. Um, She doesn't seem really into her education. How many fucking students are? Yeah, um, nobody. (laughs) But absolutely alienated by like that douchebag dude, um, and probably you know even more self-conscious about her decisions being perceived as mistakes or sins. You know, it's really kind of fucked up.
2: which, Which when you're a teenager. often forces you to want to keep, like, to go harder with those decisions just out of a sense of rebellion. Oh, yeah.
0: Drugs, alcohol, all (laughs) of it. Exactly.
2: exactly.
0: So that's even bigger. I mean, for me, like, I keep coming back to, there's a, I really, really find Julianne Moore's um, art to be absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, having this <laughs> kind of porn life that's that so impacts her son being in her life, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously the perceptions of her by her um, ex husband, her the perceptions of her by uh, you know a, a judge and a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's just so heartbreaking that really, it he, and, and it gets wh- 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 even worse wh- wh- with her drug use.
2: Right, right. But but at the same time, all of that serves to to make her sort of mother-daughter relationship with Roller Girl, that much more beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Again, yeah. It's a great character.
0: I like that you, that you, that we're really in sync on this, you know, this adopted family thing.
2: Definitely. Kind
0: of, and you know,
2: you Jack know, Warner's the patriarch, exactly Everyone else is just living in his world
0: Exactly, and yeah. talk about, you know, there's a lot of parallels here with with uh, Burt Reynolds and John Travolta okay? Absolutely,
2: <laughs> because Burt Reynolds' career was in just as much of the dumps as, Travolta Absolutely. Was, as Travolta's was before Pulp Fiction
0: And they, they both did so good after the movies of their comebacks, Pulp Fiction and, and Boogie Nights I mean, they're doing great, right?
2: Yeah, sure.
0: Burt Reynolds, uh, I believe, is having a yard sale for his uh, – it's really sad, actually, what's, what's going on with Burt Reynolds. He seems to be uh, close to I, bangru- bankruptcy.
2: I mean, he got to work with Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only, one highlight. The only thing he has in common with PTA anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh boy, do you think that at his um, his uh, like uh, lifetime acceptance Academy Award or or posthumous, if you will, um, that he that he'll they'll they'll have that as part of his reel that that his work with Adam Sandler? Uh, maybe
2: maybe. I, I think it'll get mentioned in like the like the posthumous documentary about his live boogie and the bandit because <laughs> that's his legacy, right? <laughs> boogie and the bandit. <laughs>
0: I think we've got the uh, the title of this episode. Actually, please, please. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, they're they're like we talked about this 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 uh, mainstay of, of actors. I love I love Ricky Jay. He obviously uh, P T Anderson obviously loves Ricky Jay, and Ricky Jay oh, yeah. is just this. Yeah great voice. <laughs> he has a great voice. He's the you know, David Mamet's man. He's in so many great movies and he's got this great Chicago fucking perspective on things. He seems like the type of person who would be kind of um, a, a sense of nobody's fool even in these lurid and fucked up situations of, of porn or in David Mamet's gambling or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, any sort of a crime. In, cri- in crime industries, he, he seems He's, like, the, he's
2: like. the one who knows all the angles.
0: Absolutely. He, yeah. He's nobody's fool. I th- right, absolutely.
2: Right. He, in, an, in another life, he could have played Winston Wolfe in Pulp Fiction.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um. Can we talk about William H. Macy? <laughs> as, By all means. As the most emasculated husband in uh, in the history of film. We're talking about the history of film here, people. There's a lot this, of it in yes. this movie. Uh, but yeah, this open relationship, uh, uh, much against his will. An this
2: almost <laughs> terrifyingly open relationship.
0: <laughs> he, he has no say in it, it being an open relationship. Uh, with Yes,
2: he, he has no say and she has no sense of how far she can go without embarrassing him because she doesn't a fuck. yeah absolutely and, and and he gives her no reason to
0: <laughs> absolutely his wife played by nina hartley who is a well-known porn actress if you uh if you were uh, a fan of movies in the 70s and 80s but uh yeah no it's it, it's it seems to be kind of um it seems to be kind of a joke that sobers up as the movie gets to the point that i'm i'm moving towards but yeah. uh You know, early on, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? And uh, she's like, get out of here. (laughs) Just let me do this thing. Uh, You're fucking my wife. And the guy's like, I'm sorry?
2: (laughs) That sucks. Like uh, Initially, would you say you sympathize with Macy? Oh, yeah, definitely. Immediately, and then... Do you continue to sympathize with them the deeper we get into this?
0: I mean, at some point, you need to break off into a fork. Is it ever right to commit violence? And I'm personally of the belief that no, you you shouldn't commit violence even for something like that. <laughs>
2: I agree, but, like, up to, <laughs> up to that point, <laughs> are you still with him, or do you start to see it as sort of a...
0: You mean up to the point of him doing it to himself, or...
2: <laughs> no, up to the point of him killing them. <laughs>
0: like I'm, I'm like, on board with this movie. <laughs>
2: you're, on board, you're on board with this movie, or you're on board with him? Do you still sympathize with him?
0: Oh, do I sympathize with... Uh... Yeah,
2: is, is there a point where you start to think, oh, you could have done more to either prevent this or Uh, about this before resorting to violence.
0: I think this question is more telling about you, Joe, than me.
1: (laughs) Is it?
2: Okay. Am I being too judgmental?
0: No, no, no. Well, well, how do you perceive that? How do you perceive that? Do you think that he could have done more? Um, Do you think that he was so emasculated and kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, paralyzed with Mm. his emasculation that he didn't think that he could do anything to, to change it?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I think his decision of violence at the very end is totally an act of desperation. I think that and maybe this isn't totally his fault. Maybe he needed maybe he needed a motivator to make this happen, mm-hmm. but in in a better world something should have clicked in his brain to say, "Hey, I just need to distance myself from this situation whatever the cost, whatever I lose."
0: It's very It's very interesting, too, because you would think that him being in the porn industry as desensitized as he is to it, um, maybe he's just desensitized to sex. He's not desensitized to the old-fashioned values that he attributes to sex. Right. You know, you shouldn't cheat on your husband. Whereas in that industry, it wouldn't be completely strange for you yeah, to have an open st- relationship but, or a swingers relationship with your wife. Yeah, it was, it was
2: certainly not unheard of in that industry. Right.
0: You know, my favorite, you know my favorite part of this whole movie? What is it? Him locking the door after he gets the gun from the car. He locks oh, the man. door on the car.
2: Yeah. Now, so,
0: in nah. my mind, does that mean that he thinks that he like when did he decide that he's gonna commit suicide when he came out of the room when he finally felt it it's a good question because if it's, he locked the door I think maybe he's just you know being overcautious is it just force of habit what is it
2: um may, maybe he knows perhaps he knows what he's about to do and he wants to he wants to prevent himself from making a getaway. Maybe he wants the punishment that's going to follow because he knows how horrible this thing he's about to do is. And right. then like at at the very end after he's done it, he pussies out and kills himself.
0: Instead. Right. Right.
2: May, like maybe. That's one reading. What yeah. do you
0: think? Yeah, no, I, I I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, I do like the biggest part of since we're getting into kind of the thematic and the stylistic choices of, mm-hmm. of Anderson. I yeah. do like that he is Constantly, like you said, not judgmental, but he's not um, completely a person that will always follow something through to its denouement. He won't tie up everything. He'll let that kind of sit with you. It's a very 70s American New Wave or, or French New Wave type thing. I really like it a lot.
2: Not everything has to be spoon-fed to the audience. Exactly.
0: I and I think that that's something that we um, definitely are in need of more and more these days, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, but yeah, can I go through a little bit of a timeline here? Since we're talking about the the climax or the rise and the fall of, of Rome, you know, the porn industry. Totally. Um, oh. We talked about this kind of idea. I mean, the best times of their life is still when they are in an industry that they at least perceive as art, at least Jack Horner does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, fair Fawcett... They, th- they,
1: think they're, they
2: think they're gathered together for a great common cause. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. We, they, they, they just care about the business. They care... Well, they care about the art, but they care about the idea of, you know, giving the consumer something fantastic you know right. like right. like they, like an old they, school filmmaker would
2: yeah like like they they are the what was it, Orson Welles Theater troupe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The Mercury Theater exactly. or whatever. Exactly, Yeah, the, like this is the exact same thing. They want to deliver something great for their audience but I think, like, even from the beginning of the movie, I, th- I think they know how much of a family unit they actually right. are and it, it acts as a sort of a safety net as their lives start going through these ups and downs. Right.
0: I think it's perfectly embodied in Jack Horner at the diner kind of making this, this statement to them. Mm-hmm. When... The consumer spurts out that joy juice. They just have to sit in it until they find out how the story ends. That's the type of films he wants to make. That the story is so engrossing that the sex is just a byproduct. And it's interesting because what do we look at for sex now? Everything is so gonzo and that just means sex scenes. They don't even like... I don't know how many people I would... Be able to have a, you know, if we were having an honest conversation about this, um, watch porn for the stories or watch porn for the movie par- portion of it. They really are watching the sex just to get off and, and move on to the next thing of their day. Right. You know, it's commodity now. It's so much a commodity that um, the the artistic thing that it's taking from, whether that is aping um, grand films of the past or making a sexual spin on some sort of movie that people know, even back then, fucking porn parody was a big thing right but um yeah no it's it's interesting
2: i I feel like i i never have before but i feel like if i were sitting down to watch like a a legitimate feature film that also happened to be pornographic and was going to watch it from point a to point b opening credits to end credits i think i would have one of two reactions either i would like totally get into it and what happens after that Mm -hmm. or i would like, be sitting there thinking, okay, how is this, like, 10-minute sex scene furthering the emotional arc of the character?
0: You're too too inside baseball,
2: man. You don't know. It's true.
0: But, I mean, like, it's how (laughs) many times...
2: Huh? We're through the looking glass. I know, I know.
0: It's like, how many attempts does it take to watch Showgirls all the way through?
2: I don't think that I've ever... (laughs) I haven't tried it the first time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You let me know if you're able to watch it on the first time or even in the first five times all the way through. <laughs> and then we'll talk. Um, but yeah, then that gives way. That, that carefree, almost, you know, wor- worry-free, worry-free of, of disease, of of everything is at the height. You know, even drug use is very recreational. You have a, a chick that ODs, but that was her fault, you know? Or it's, right. it's bad shit is what it was.
2: <laughs> That's true. Most of this movie takes place before the AIDS crisis ever hits. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And once you get into this, when you get into the deep sobering, and I mean that in the idea of sobering you up to how terrible the world can be of the um, 1980s, danger, drugs, excess, disease, egos running rampant. Uh, definitely really? sexism, racism, uh, already there, but even worse in the eighties.
2: Yeah, everyone suddenly becomes more concerned with themselves than the people around them.
0: Exactly. I mean, Dirk yeah. Diggler is is the yeah, arc and that
2: he's totally indicative of that. Absolutely. He, he is the seventies to the eighties. Absolutely.
0: If you yeah. look at Dirk Diggler's AVN award speech in 1977, uh-huh. how how hopeful he was, big saucer <laughs> eyes of of how great Brock Landers and these. <laughs> these ideas these hopes he had for the industry um, and ver- and put that you know compare that to his speech in 1979 where he just gets out there and he's like thank you <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. that's very indicative of a, a, a of how he perceives himself just in a two year span
2: he knows how far he's fallen like he like it's becoming harder and harder to uh Uh, To reconcile the delusion with the reality.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then on top of that, the new guard, you know, Johnny Doe coming in, this young punk, who he was at one point, I think, um, (laughs) kind of threatening him. I think Johnny Doe is even more, you know, interested in the commodity. He's interested in the fucking more than anything,
2: Right. where Dirk Diggler, maybe he's interested... More more, more of a child of the 80s than Dirk was. He is!
0: He's, He's fucking watching Empire Strikes Back and loving exactly. <laughs> it. Turk Diggler was watching the conversation and he was thinking about how great an actor he could be and everything, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. But 1983, I think that it's a very interesting year as depicted by this movie and, and several others, actually, in uh, a major downfall, you know, and it seems to be so uh, connected to drugs. Obviously, we didn't mention Thomas Jane in this right. movie. Uh it's- Incredible in this movie. He's absolutely incredible.
2: A a live wire from the first moment you see him. Absolutely,
0: I think everything can be hanged on him for where the movie goes
2: (laughs) in in many ways. (laughs) Definitely, Um, He, he is the devil on Dirk Diggler's shoulder. Yeah,
0: he's the idea man, and I think that it's it's great. You know, as far as the 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 setup of these of these relationships is Dirk Diggler seems to be the the action guy, the guy that will act on things. Uh, you have the idea man and Thomas Jane. You have John C. Riley as this sidekick, who's
2: who, who's who's the who's the kind of immoral support <laughs> exactly, <if you> will.
0: <laughs> exactly, and also the one who questions so much. You know,
2: yeah, is it. He- he tries to be the conscience but yeah.
0: he's failing. Yeah. So through through the through the ideas of ego and excess we're really getting into a point where you know Dirk Diggler is recording you got the touch. Mm-hmm. He's he's singing he's he's recording songs uh with with John C Riley and they really think they oh we definitely got the record contract. We definitely <laughs> have this. Um, and I think that that's just that is totally the the type of thing that type of ego that mm-hmm. kind of narcissism that just you know like there's there's no way this could him.
2: possibly fail. Oh, no way.
0: <laughs> Give us the tapes, you know, we'll go get the record contract. We'll be back in like two hours. Exactly. Yeah, and we'll pay you.
2: Um yeah, you, have a long, you have a hard time seeing reality when there's so much uh, cocaine dust in front of you. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And where does he go from there to to jacking off in cars with uh with a gay basher. Can I ask how long does this guy have to look if, he's, if he hates gays that much, mm-hmm. how long does he have to look at Dirk jerking off? And why does he only signal the guys? Does he signal the guys to come in? I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. Why does he wait that long if he's such a, a gay hater? I don't get it.
2: Maybe he's, as Kevin Smith would put it, a closet self loather uh-huh, There you go. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's just bottomed the barrel. You think that it yeah. can't get it any worse, and of course—
2: And, and then it, it does. Yeah. And then Rahad Jackson happens. Exactly.
0: <laughs> bright bright, bright ideas. Let's go rob a drug dealer. Or not yeah. rob, but try to dupe one. Yeah. But um, you know, also that kind of that whole scene, that despair scene, you know, backed up by one of the most um, uh, despair-ridden uh, songs, scores that I've that I've heard in any movie. Um, I think he's reused that. He re- reused it from Hard Eight. Really? Yeah, it was in Hard Eight towards yeah, they, the end. They are
2: both Michael Penn scores, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, uh, yeah, no, this is really kind of, you know, the worst time of Jack Horner's life, the the worst time of Roller Girl's life, right. the worst time for, for Julianne Moore.
2: dealing with the disintegration of the ego just as much as Dirk oh, yeah. Diggler is. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: Because Dirk Diggler is the man who makes his movies, you know? He's the one who makes the—his the, name is what makes Jack Horner, not
2: Jack Horner, you know? Absolutely. He's De Niro and Jack Horner is Scorsese. Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> But yeah, no, man, this, this movie, as I was re-watching it, just seeing that that kind of arc, I mean, it is, of anything, probably the most narrative movie that I've seen uh, of his. Um, yeah. it's, it's not hard to understand anything, really, in it. There's nothing impenetrable. <laughs> um, even I would say even um, Hard Eight has more things left up in the air, more questions that you could ask. Yeah, Stor-
2: story-wise, that movie is pretty straightforward, but in terms of the characters and their yeah. backgrounds, there are a lot of things left unsaid. Right. Boogie Nights, everything, like al- almost everything at least, is very much left uh, on the table. Yeah,
0: it's a legit yeah. commercial property. Yeah. And um, this is kind of where we're getting into it. I mean, you know, he has this... I think that maybe he's kind of rebelled against it with his his more recent movies, that mm-hmm. he's no longer trying to be... Even though he's an influence, he's no longer trying to be the that protege, this continuation of Robert Altman. Yeah, you know,
2: and um, he, I, 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 I strongly feel like he stopped trying to be a pop artist too after yeah. Magnolia, because yeah. like as as soon as Magnolia was over, that movie had to be so exhausting that a change of pace, if and he was so. going to grow artistically at all, yeah. it was necessary, like unavoidable, yeah. and that's why immediately you get Punch Drunk Love, which yeah. is so much smaller and yeah. more. Uh, less narrative driven just as much character driven right and but then,
0: also you get rid of this element this you know nashville element or shortcuts element or nash element it's, of the ensemble cast
2: yeah it's not an ensemble anymore yeah. it's focused entirely on one character which carried over to there will be blood too just yes. on a more epic scale yes and and
0: yeah. the master too the master, the master is too. so focused on really two sides of a coin
2: right and um or, or three sides of a coin there you go you can you can yeah. make that
0: case you can make yeah. that case um but um i think more than anything visually speaking and we're we're, we're kind of wrapping up here with boogie yeah. nights probably the long shots you know the long duration shots the dolly shots i mean that dolly shot yeah. of the club at the beginning the
2: opening in the club yes, absolutely H. macy killing his wife yes. the, the the long shot on dirk in the house at the end yes absolutely yeah it's it's it the the, the, the technique—it's so exuberant, it's so showy, calls attention to itself yes. that it's undeniable. Yes, the, the, the skill on display can't be fucked with. Yes,
0: and playing with oh, I also thought about this playing with where source audio is coming from. That's a very Altman-esque thing too. Yeah, um, totally. As he's going through the club, hearing each little person's uh, you know conversation and everything.
2: Yeah, the 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 background dialogue that is very much an Altman thing as well.
0: Right. And we're getting, honestly, I'm glad that you said it because it feels like he's exuberant. It feels like he's hungry. It feels like he's vibrant. It feels like he has something to prove Yes. with Boogie Nights. Um, I remember seeing the the making of stuff, the kind of actors' um, workshop stuff that they were doing for Hard Eight. And it seemed like, I'm going to film these grand... Scenes of, of acting performance, of, of dialogue interwoven. I'm going to get great acting performance like he was doing a play. Right. And I'm going to film it.
2: Yeah, it's it's so interesting that watching the parallel of his career with Quentin Tarantino's career. Right. Because they both started out with a very small-scale, French New Wave-influenced uh, crime piece that is largely comprised of A bunch of tough guys sitting around discussing the intricacies of whatever it is they're trying to do, Reservoir Dogs and Hard Eight. And then also in both cases, they each follow it up with their big pop masterpiece of the 90s that everyone everyone still talks about.
0: You blew blew my mind just now. Amazing. And,
2: And then they both go toward their probably their most emotionally fueled ensemble piece with Jackie Brown and Magnolia.
0: True,
2: true. That's kind of where it ends. But it was it was cool during the nineties. Did
0: either one of them make a tusk like feature? <laughs> can we can we bring Kevin Smith
2: into this? I'm uh, uh think maybe. about it. Think
0: mm-hmm. about it. I don't know. Uh, no, we'll come back to
2: it. <laughs> inherent vice, maybe. It's not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I, I've, no I've read The Hateful Eight, there are no walruses in
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is a a real Arc here since, you know, if you're, if you are at all aware. Of where P.T. Anderson is coming from and his influence and everything, and and obviously what kind of path it pushed him past um, Magnolia. I mean, Magnolia really is that demarcation line for um, something. You can,
2: you can never make Magnolia yeah. again once you've made Magnolia. No, no, no. It's no. the same thing with Christopher Nolan and in Inception. He yeah. keeps trying to recapture that magic, and it's just not going to happen because you no. only get to capture that lightning in the bottle once. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So after that, that I mean, obviously, there's more focus there. I think that he's more, more than anything, he's more confident. There's yeah. that 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 something he's, to prove thing has kind of bled away.
2: But, but at the same time, he's kind of freer now because yeah. because he can start changing it up. He can kind of start taking, weirdly, kind of start taking risks again now that he can stop being hungry. If right. that makes sense, right. He's very, he's very much a director who's concerned, I think, with not pigeonholing himself. Like, a Quentin Tarantino movie, no matter how different the plot is from one to another, is always going to be a Quentin Tarantino movie. But I think pta something PTA is very good at is changing up the mood and the style and the general aesthetic from story to story.
0: Well, let's talk about his, probably his most atypical movie. Because in a way, I think that it is, it might be, Kind of the boiling down of every movie that came beforehand to something that is almost completely shorthand. It's not a. It's not a narratively all. It's not a narratively deep movie like Boogie Nights. They're not. There's not a lot of plot lines going on here. There's not a lot of story story happening here. It's very pointed. It's very, it might, you might have multiple themes here, but it's, it's a very small story.
2: Yeah. In terms of plotting, the master is like, it's in comparison to Boogie Nights, Magnolia, there's, there's not a whole lot going on, but in terms of the subtler character beats, i I think what little there is going on is very complex. Right.
0: No, I I I, th- I would be amiss to uh, start talking about the master without giving, like most of the things we talk about on the show, some sort of autobiographical context. Yeah. Um, I, I think I talked about this on uh, Ken Edwards. So let's get to the point podcast when I was on that show um, talking about how I had this phase um, where I was having panic attacks. Yeah. I started having panic attacks. You were, li-
2: you were listening to Gobbledygook while you had one of those, correct?
0: Absolutely. No, I was no. That was a that was a car accident.
2: <laughs> okay, I confused the two. I apologize. You know, AJ is almost like a panic attack. He
0: is. Huh? You've been friends with him for a while, so you know shortness of breath, thinking you're having a heart attack. Exactly. Exactly. But um, no, I was going through this phase. A lot of stress in my life, a lot of stress at work, at home, and stuff like that. And I started having panic attacks. And for anyone who's never had a panic attack. There is a cloud of dread, and you can't do anything about it. Just this cloud of dread that descends over your your mind, and you you start having not chest pains but shortness of breath. Um, right. You think you're having a heart attack or whatever, and whatever you do, you think that you're gonna die right there alone, and no one's gonna find you. Okay, even if you're out in public, okay, you're gonna feel that. That sounds so, intense. It is. and It, it <laughs> is intense. And that is why it took me three times to see The Master before I was able to watch it unfettered. Oh, the, man. Fr- the first time I saw The Master. Um, We were at this really nice uh, American Film Institute kind of uh, um, art house theater out here in Silver Spring. And uh, we saw it and it was, you know, a packed audience. Every seat was taken. And uh, obviously already that's not a perfect atmosphere for someone who's about to have a panic attack. But uh, I started noticing I'm getting headaches. I'm getting dizzy and everything just sitting there.
2: This is also kind of the wrong movie for someone who thinks they're about to have a panic attack. Not, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Aimlessness, I have shell shock, I don't know what's happening. We're already going from the window to the wall.
1: <laughs>
0: <Like>. <laughs> already. But uh, I know the exact scene, and this is even funny, uh, the exact scene where I had to leave the theater was the one where Freddie Quell is seeing um, all the women that, uh, that, uh, that um, uh, Lancaster Dodd is singing to, Naked. And they're all naked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So maybe I was just hotter than the collar, I had to leave. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe
2: this was your boogie nights moment. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Exactly. So that made me leave the theater. And unfortunately, it was uh, about two or three weeks before I saw it again. And, and this time I saw it with a friend um, and it was a empty theater at the same at the same AFI theater, but a, an empty theater this time. Um, and it was uh, I still had the feeling, still had the feeling. It didn't didn't cause an attack, but I had that feeling throughout the movie.
2: Were you feeling it before you got to the theater? No, no, no. Okay, so so it happened during the movie. Again, yes. <laughs> Did it perhaps this is just like a question did it p- perhaps happen because the movie caused you to recall the way you were feeling the first time you tried to watch the movie i think and had that experience i think
0: you're absolutely right i think that's what happened like i i also um saw uh end of watch that david ayer movie yeah and that. that's a movie where i started having another panic attack but i i was able to talk myself out of it Like In in my head I was able to get over it. So when I saw end of watch I didn't think about it But I thought about it the second time with the master because obviously I was worried that it was gonna happen again
2: right so anyway, well, maybe, maybe with the master, you're not th- you're just not thinking about how uncommitted to the handheld.
1: device.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got me perfect. It's just, you know, the aesthetics that are completely in my mind the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it really I saw so I saw it complete that second time. But I got to say, I had a really I just did, I don't think I, I registered it. It didn't it didn't touch me in any particular way. And then it wasn't until I saw it on on, on Blu-ray uh much later um right. when it came out that I watched it really unfettered without this, you know, this dread uh even the possibility of dread hanging over my head. Right.
2: So you watched it safely in your home and you in enjoyed my it more home. then.
0: Exactly. I think I enjoyed it uh, a little bit more. I was still. This is definitely at that point. I was still kind of middle of the road on it. I was like, nah. But when it's- I rewatched it this time for uh-huh. this podcast, I got to tell you, I really, really appreciate it. It's but- not a. Per- it's not a perfect movie.
2: It's not. But and and it's a tough movie to deal with. I remember to get autobiographical on this end for a second. I remember back when it came out, the year two thousand and twelve. For months leading up to it, like I was like tusk levels of obsessed with this movie coming out. Every time there was a new trailer, and this the trailer, some, the poster. This movie had some excellent trailers yes. too. They they were all just as uh, haunting and irregular li- and set to irregular rhythms as the film itself is. Yeah. And like that. Knowing it was Paul Thomas Anderson, knowing Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman would be going head-to-head in it, yeah. everything about it just made me more and more excited for it. Yeah. Uh, it came out September 2012. I called out of work on a Sunday at the last minute to go to Knoxville <laughs> and see it <laughs> with my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. and uh, We watched it and I as, I as we were leaving the theater I distinctly remember having the sensation that I had just seen something great, but that, that I was not sure what what thematic takeaway or what emotion I was supposed to be leaving this story with.
0: It takes a long time. I, I gotta be honest, you have to see this movie a few times for yeah. not only it to sink in, but to really discern, at least for me, I had to watch it a lot to discern what I really felt was the first time impenetrable for me.
2: Right. Th- this was my third viewing of it and I think it's it's still not totally there but I think it opened itself up to me by far the most of any of the three viewings this time around. Right. Yeah.
0: Like I said it's not as impenetrable as people think and I right. don't think that it is um as I don't think that it's like as deep and hard to to crack as people make it.
2: Exactly. It's not like okay. Like let let's get into it right now. If let's you do don't it. Mind. Let's do it. Okay. This movie hit hits credits. What you watching at this time? What do you th- What do you think the point of the master was? By
0: uh, the by the end of that point. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna say that there are two ends to this. Okay. There's the Lancaster Dodd ending with Freddie Quell, mm-hmm. where he's singing "Slow Boat to China." Right. And then there is a joke
2: of an ending that Wh- which is him seducing the girl with the processing questions.
0: Processing a girl during sex, basically, as yeah. I read it, equaling perverting or penetrating pun intended. Yes. Um as Just like Dodd's processing would, but doing it during penetration, real penetration, penetrating the character or the mind as much as he's doing physically.
2: And is he is he doing that penetration out? Is is he making a joke of it or is he doing it out of a sense of longing?
0: That's a good question. I mean, sense of longing is that is that that movie wide theme here for, for Freddie Quill
2: right because i think he's making a joke of it absolutely yeah
0: i'm with you on that i that, feel like his perversion of it mm-hmm. is is so endemic to his character yeah he's the I, animal
2: he he is the animal and i i think that this this might be me taking the title too literally there was this whole thing back when This movie came out. It got to a point where people started making fun of people who would be like, "Oh, I think Amy Adams is actually the master. No, actually, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son is the master. Who is the fucking master? But I think, I think Joaquin Phoenix is the master because he's an animal. Because he is so in tune with." with his h- human desires he's not beholden to any specific cause if you will right. and i th- i think i think the master philip Seymour Hoffman's the master yeah. is the least control character at least least in control character of the three principles you he's did. he's totally he's he's almost powerless all he has is his personality joaquin phoenix he's the Joaquin Phoenix is fully human. Yeah. Amy Adams is fully in control. Yeah. There's there's even a ver- a very telling moment that I never picked up on until this viewing. And it's in the first it's in the first processing scene. Lancaster asks Freddy, Do you ever have bad thoughts about Master Peggy? He calls that character oh. Master. Like, I mean, he's He's a figurehead, if anything.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because the way that I, I mean, this is so on the surface, but I don't think that people realize this kind of dichotomy. At least mainstream audiences don't re- realize this um, uh, dichotomy, and maybe that's why the movie didn't do as well. I mean, it was an artist, right. uh, an art house, you know, small. Uh,
2: a- every- everyone who was concerned with release. movies went to see it but sure. not not most other people.
0: But I think even people who, and, and honestly, uh, another movie that's incredibly narratively driven, There Will Be Blood, which is my favorite movie of P.T. Anderson's.
2: It's a masterpiece.
0: It is a masterpiece. Yeah. And it's got uh, great characterization. Mm-hmm. When I come from that movie to this movie, which it, by all accounts would be a disappointment, I watch it again, and I'm seeing Lancaster Dodd. He's a shyster. He's yep. a fake. He's perverted in his lies. He's, he's
2: he's Daniel Plainview. He
0: is, and he's yeah. he's and he wears this fucking coat of academic sophistication, where yep. he where he judges everyone else, including Quell. So oh, this really. snake oil salesman, you know this this man who you know uh, quick wit and uh, and uh, and a silver tongue, yep. is judging this man who. Freddie Quell is honest about his sins. He's mm-hmm. honest about his animalism. He might not even be uh, conscious of his scoundrel attude, but right. he does it. He's just he's just living. He is him.
2: Right, and Lancaster judges him, but isn't he also sort of using him?
0: Absolutely.
2: He's using him for alcohol, definitely. Absolutely, do, at the do you think something I picked up on this viewing that I also hadn't before, do you think uh, Lancaster's feelings for Freddie... Veer into the romantic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do yeah. you read that last scene? How do you I read mean, that?
2: I mean, that—that's definitely how I read it. That is—that is a scene of a spurned lover making a last attempt to draw back the person who rejected him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because at that point, I mean, you know, he's already been accused of. Uh, Quell has already been accused of not being able to even take this life straight. He's always right. got to be. Um, he's, always, yeah, he's drunk. Always-
2: gotta be drunk yeah. and he's he's very sex obsessed but it, uh, let me say that again he's very sex obsessed right. but it's it's always directed at women right and it's that re, that relationship with between freddie and lancaster was never going to be more than a, either a friendship or a master servant yes. kind of deal.
0: Well, it's such a spider web too. I think that's what makes it impenetrable for some people. That some people cannot discern because it's not said. It's it's something you have to read into it. I mean, the most <laughs> on the level type things you can kind of take away from this is that The cause, the people around Lancaster Dodd, including his wife, his son-in-law, his daughter, um, the Laura Dern character to a certain extent, um, these real followers, the real true believers um, really don't trust Freddie. And I wonder about that with you because do you feel like they don't trust Freddie because he's the, the weak link? He's the blemish on the cause?
2: I wonder if it's not so much that he's a weak link in the cause as it is they realize what his ability and his influence could Uh be to make Lancaster a weak link in the cause. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Because I keep seeing that and I think of, you know obviously, you, you know, so much of this is is based on Scientology. So much right. of this is L. Ron Hubbard. And people know, knew this coming in, knew this from, you know, the outset, um, what this movie was supposed to be dealing with. But it's this mob mentality, this gang. Right. That um, the cause really is, you know, if you're a true believer, if you're a follower, you're a gang. When Freddie is at least acting like a true believer, he's a thug. He's a fucking, you know, he's, oh, yeah. he's, the, he's the dude they send in to, to find a to to, to quell
2: <laughs> to <laughs> well
0: to, to quell dissidents, you know he, anybody who says anything he, against them.
2: He puts on a good performance. Like you, you believe that he is dedicated to what to this uh, to the, to this system of doctrine that the cause is trying to espouse. Yeah, but but I think I think the ending kind of pulls the rug out from that. Well, like, you s- it, it lets you it lets you know that this was always Freddie trying to find his place and not being able to find it
0: well absolutely because i think that you you see little moments of that you see any time that he's violently reacting uh (laughs) freddie is violently violently reacting to any sort of detractors or critics of uh dodd it seems to me that he doesn't want to be reminded that he's trying to convince himself too
2: right right he's 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 fighting just as much for his own sense of belief yeah. in this in this whole mess as right. he is for that of the others Right,
0: bringing back yeah. doubts so you right. have the skeptic at the party who's asking about the the, the cause what was it uh um curing leukemia yeah and yeah. uh laura Dern and and you know the the scene that she has uh not with freddie Quell, but laura Dern having that scene with um with the god where,
2: where she starts to question the the, the process uses where yeah. He changes it from recall to imagine, right. exactly. which, which kind of uh, is more reductive, exactly. as, as far as how how real the cause actually is. Exactly, yeah. And
0: then Freddie with and, the other and, and, guy.
2: In both of those instances, uh, Lancaster's reaction is the same. He starts out trying to be reasonable but it just grows and grows with him over Absolutely. the course of the scene until Absolutely. he has his Philip Seymour Hoffman outburst exactly yeah
0: that's that skeptic at the party scene I think that I was really admiring how he was keeping it together because I knew that he was going to blow his top I'm talking about like the first time I saw it <clears throat> right and I just could tell that you know where is his where is that that time where it rips where his temper just cannot be held under anymore and it's so interesting oh, if
2: it was me, it would have been the time he said, excuse me, like 15 times in a row.
0: <laughs> that's, where, that, that's where you would lose your shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, no, it's so interesting between the skeptic at the party where he seems to be really trying uh, to keep his patience going to the scene with Laura Dern where he, like, it takes three lines before he's like, you know, yeah, this it, is the new it, way.
2: It is quicker in that scene, yeah. and
0: no, I think that it's interesting that both of them, Quell and Dodd, have yeah. this, for different reasons. They have this, you know, Dodd doesn't want to be found out. Especially to himself, he doesn't want to be found out. Uh-huh. And uh, to Quell, it is constantly... Um, what, what is He doesn't the- want to
2: find himself out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But also, he I think that he definitely has um, has... Um Dodd to think like he's got admiration for Dodd uh-huh. and I think that you know if you're talking about that master servant relationship the father son relationship, whatever that that element kind of uh constantly sneaks in throughout the whole movie that he's he he's trying to convince himself uh that that uh, uh, Quell is trying to convince himself and at that point I mean he 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 leaves and comes back several times. At least
2: tw- at least twice over the course yeah. of the film.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I think that it's interesting as I was re-watching this, what do you think about his um connection to Doris? This plot
2: line. Ooh. Yeah. Uh the Freddie's relationship with Doris is obviously key because that's the thing. Any any time Doris is mentioned in the processing or the conditioning sequences yeah. with the cause, yeah. that that is the thing that that triggers Freddie's short fuse. It's the thing that makes him get get angry, get violent. It's the thing that causes him to cry that now trademark Joaquin Phoenix single tear, which yeah. is just amazing. <laughs> but um, it's I don't know. Is, is Doris is, does Doris represent a better version of himself that he could have been? Is I mean, Doris symbolic of his regret?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. If, his, if his life was with Doris, if he didn't leave and go into the army,
2: he, he, he would have had something to, he, he would have had a cause to attach himself to. Yeah. He would have had something to believe in and work toward. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think he's obviously broken. I mean, we're talking about a man yeah. who's so, he's so infatuated with sex and masturbation mm-hmm. and and even the masculinity the female companionship of it the intimate Keep- the not only the intimacy but the mm-hmm. impotency that
2: he has yeah you know keeping this guy honest was always going to be a struggle absolutely
0: yeah. and then obviously you throw into that The war and Mm -hmm. uh, PTSD, shell shock, which
2: only fucked him up even more. Yeah, and then like, like it's right at the beginning. But one of my favorite sequences in the movie is just detailing him coming back from the war and trying to find his place in the post-war America. Aimlessness, aimlessness, and it's just it's just not happening. Right, Mm -hmm.
0: this whole time that he has this, you know, he has the 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 photographing job. Right, uh, with W. Earl Brown trying to bring that that
2: uh, <laughs> that light closer <laughs> and closer to oh, him. Oh man, <laughs> you should shut up. Uh, the, the, there's that's that scene is so interesting because the way Phoenix plays it at first, it genuinely in his presumably drunken state it genuinely seems like he's trying to light that picture better but by the end it is solely antagonistic <laughs> and just, based on nothing too it's just an impulse like that yeah. guy that guy didn't do anything to warrant it's, it's, that
0: it's childishness i think he just wants to get you know a rise he, out he of he wants someone. a rise out yeah. of them
2: yeah exactly everything like I I feel like Freddy is a character who is most dedicated to whatever can stimulate him the most. Whether it be... Alcohol or sex with this girl who mm-hmm. also works at the department store, right. or just making this wealthy guy angry. Yeah, yeah. Like any anything. He's that's an gonna, anarchist. He's, he's, <laughs> an, he's the original anarchist. Anything that can make him excited.
0: Um, but yeah, no. He he goes to this this escape, this drunkenness, yeah. this poisoning of the temple yeah. of his body. It's interesting that the poisoning of the temple is what leads him to something that's almost a religion. You know.
2: Oh, so true. Yeah. Such so well said which is a, which is a
0: poison of of its own religion you know this thing yeah. that we've already talked about is that the scientology or the whatever the cause is uh that you could you know acclimate to is really yeah it there is this perversion the perversion
2: is the exploitation mm-hmm. um the because it's in- all, it's all about control very quickly absolutely
0: the interrogation the processing
2: yeah, it's completely controlled. Which, which are two extremely disturbing sequences. The the conditioning, especially yes. like that that's that's mind control. Yeah, getting him to go from that window to that wall to yeah. confront what he's feeling about Doris. That's they're they're fucking with him. They yeah. they want to get him on their side.
0: Yeah, it's 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 cult like. He yeah. that that's yeah. skeptic it, ab- of the party already is Yeah. Either breaking him down, you know, and it's interesting yeah. that he probably got broken down in the same way when he went into the Army or the Marines because they like to to build them from their own mold. Right. So he has probably dealt with this several times. Even though he seems anti-authoritarian, mm-hmm. he also seems like very much in need of direction. Um, yeah. It's weird. It, it,
2: it, that's a good point when he when he was in the war when he was in what was it the army navy
0: I want to say yeah it? yeah I don't know the marines uh, or the army I don't know
2: yeah whichever one of those he like that's a whole other system of control yeah. that that he was very much a part of yeah. when the war is over wouldn't he naturally be see- emotionally be seeking something like that right. after after being so entrenched in it literally and figuratively for right. so long
0: But what you're doing here is, I mean, you're obviously seeing a couple different types of uh, processing. And one of those is with that uh, army medic or army doctor um, towards the beginning of the movie. And I find it so interesting that that scene is really Freddie Quell being so self-conscious about um, not denying his masculinity, not admitting that he cried uh, to kind of uh, play up his perversion, um, that there's something off Mm -hmm. about him. Everything
2: he sees on everything he sees on the Rush Act test is sexual. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. But all of it is so much um a front. It's so much surface. I don't think that he's going too deep with it. But right. he does he starts to try to do the same thing with Lancaster Dodd for the first processing scene. And it wasn't until That's the thing about processing. That's the thing if you don't – if you're not aware of processing is that it's supposed to get you to focus on not blinking your eyes or repeating Mm -hmm. questions over and over and over again until you tell the truth or the truth to yourself. Right. So that's what he's going through. I mean the army interrogation or the army processing is so much he's in control of it. But he has no control with Dodd. Right.
2: Right. Don Don uh, Dodd knows how to how to get at him. Yeah, he he he's practiced this. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's it's entirely possible that there have been other Freddy Quells already. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I can see that. What did you think since we since we've been talking about um, how different this movie is to uh, P. T. Anderson's earlier work? What do you think is the signifier of that? What do you see that's that maybe is is different or a distillation of his earlier uh, style?
2: I think. Um, I think There Will Be Blood is an important touchstone for this movie. I, th- I think they're very different. I think There Will Be Blood is basically a perfect film, whereas this is not. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the grandeur of the cinematography is similar here to There Will Be Blood. Yes. And I also think that There Will Be Blood, large sections of it have a sort of almost novelistic, not quite episodic uh, yeah, structure to them uh-huh. that I think the Master follows suit with, but the difference between the Master and There Will Be Blood is There Will Be Blood, even though it, there are ambiguities in it, you you always know where you're at, yeah. whereas, whereas in the Master there's a lot of narrative abstraction. Yes, it's a did, very abstract. You, yeah. There's like uh i think we both watched the deleted scenes on the blu ray right. correct it's it's like a 20 minute sequence that feels that feels like it could have just been pulled from the center of the movie yeah. it's it's so in tune with the almost alienating rhythms that the the final film has yeah. but they didn't i felt at least they didn't they didn't necessarily offer any new information i think i think the film has a lot of blanks that either the audience has to fill in Mm -hmm. or they're going to remain blanks.
0: Well, this is the movie that I, like, when I watch it, I think of... Michael Cimino and Heaven's Gate. I think about those 70s American New Wave movies where so much of it was, um, you know, like Five Easy Pieces with um, Jack Nicholson. These movies that were so character oriented, but they were about abstract characterization that you were able to. And and characters that.
2: And characterization that, especially in Five Easy Pieces' case, didn't necessarily have to have an A to B arc. Yeah, absolutely they, not. They, di- they didn't have to change by the end. Right. It was, there, it was more It was more about the journey.
0: There was, exactly. There was no yeah. follow-through of A to B to Z. It, it, it yeah. was obviously something that you go A to H. And you exactly. would leave it up to the viewer to try to discern how did they get to H. Right. So... You don't see that anymore, and I think that that's one of the the real things that I admire about the movie is that mm. with both Joaquin Phoenix and, honestly, I think this might be my favorite performance by Hoffman. I think Hoffman's superb in this movie.
2: He, he's fantastic. Yeah. He, he, his performance is perhaps the most interesting in the movie because he's in his character is in this position where he has to maintain the guise of absolute power at all times. Yeah but he's got nothing absolutely he, he has like next to no cards to play Right. whether it be in a scene with freddie or in a scene with peggy he he is not the top dog
0: yeah he's utterly vulnerable but he yes. has to come off like he's the all-knowing patriarch yeah.
2: exactly because there are people watching and he has to be that person for them
0: right so do you think that it's just the abstraction that that most people um because i've heard it i've heard people talk about how impenetrable this movie is and and I kind of felt this earlier this year when I was talking to, to Eric about um, Magnolia. I feel like there's a part of Magnolia that's impenetrable from its from a spiritual and religious standpoint that you could probably talk about for hours, and that's one of the the benefits of Magnolia.
2: But, could you? Uh, is is there a Reader's Digest version of that? <laughs>
0: is there a Cliff's Nose? No, I, I I feel like we talked about that that scene with the frogs uh, raining okay. and um, kind
2: that, of so so that what you're kind of saying is that's the point where m- some audiences will go this way and some audiences are going to go this. Yeah. Other way.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it's the question of how you read that and what you take yeah. away from it. And I think that for some people, we watching it, even for myself, I don't think that it's, it's needed to have an answer. Like, uh-huh. what does that mean? I hate yeah. that when people ask that question, what does that mean? You don't need to have what's, what does that mean. You can have many different uh, readings on what, everything that we're talking about Boogie Nights. And, uh, well, maybe not Boogie Nights, but everything we're talking about with the Master. I'm sure there's someone out there that completely disagrees. Right. and sees it another way. And that's yeah, that, that's perfectly fine.
2: Yeah, that's the beauty of filmmaking. That's the beauty of art. Everyone, based on their experience, what they've been through, what their life has been, right. Like you're going to have a different take on a piece of art than, a, than, a, than another person who right. has lived a totally different life than you.
0: But it dawned on me as we were talking about doing this podcast that yeah. what is impenetrable is you go from there will be blood yes. to the master. It's very much like going from drive... Two, only God forgives for me only not terrible. <laughs> you said that I actually love that movie. I love that movie. Okay, that's another we're gonna, podcast. We're going to talk not. 2 hours for that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh no, I'm it, not watching that again <laughs> doing that podcast.
2: <laughs> let's just talk drive for 2 hours.
0: <laughs> no, let's let's talk about it from just a heads up perspective. Um Drive is very much a movie that even I like when I saw it, like this is how how kind of out of step I feel. Drive is not a movie that I was blown away by. Was it's amazing and everything. Uh-huh. I did see it again after everybody blew up and started getting their hard ons about it, and I was like, oh, this is very good, very good. Yeah. I always love the music, you know. I love, I love <laughs> the the drama, the the performance, but. Um, I can understand why people are so disappointed with Only God Forgives. If they go into Only God Forgives, like almost 99% of the people did, expecting Drive 2.
2: See, I wasn't even expecting Drive 2. I was just expecting story and characters.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) oh it's the Jabathon. i love it i love it
2: pretty much
0: (laughs) no but my my point is that if you go into the master expecting the same sort of narrative gymnastics that there will be blood has Uh you're not going to get the same thing i feel like you're going to be left with kind of uh, how do i read this
2: right there will there will be blood is a film of much more closure than the master and clarity
0: I, I, and clarity and,
2: and clarity that i think than i think the master ever aspired to be right. there will be blood literally ends with the words i'm finished <laughs>
1: the <master> does
0: Not <laughs> that's how you know he's finished no yeah exactly Very
2: good <laughs> i took that picture <laughs> <laughs> such a pta line by
0: the way. <laughs> uh I think that he's also I think the master really is I mean maybe you could make a case that there are cinephiles that are going to make it the quotable movie but it certainly is kind of going against the grain of the most quotable line of 2007 I drink your milkshake
2: milkshake. you know what I mean yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> it's it's not a movie. It's a well-written movie. It's a well-acted movie, but it's not like I'm going to go around saying, well, you, you started it off with a quote, so maybe I'm completely wrong.
2: Yeah, but I'm a cinephile. Yeah, that's I, I, true. I, I, I'm probably going to close the podcast <laughs> by asking you to turn my eyes black. It's whatever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i guess that's the 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 biggest the biggest crime that pt anderson ever committed was really just cutting melora walters from the master
2: this is true i had, I had never seen that deleted scene before before you told me to it's watch insane. it
0: it's insane but i mean you know at the at the at the at the 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 place that he's at he can't play it safe
2: at the place fair. that he's
0: at he can't he can't just rely on his old actors he can't bring in john c riley to steal the day
2: yeah, he can't he can't be giving his audience what he wants. anymore. Exactly. This is not the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: um, with that in a, mind, man. No, go ahead. What were you saying?
2: There's a well, how related to Malora Walters was what you were about to say?
0: Yeah, I know. I was going to say how related to inherent vice do you think that we have have to expect coming from the master? Do we feel like it feels to me Mm -hmm. From what I've seen so far, that we might be dealing with a a a return to ensemble casts.
2: Definitely a return to ensemble casts. But if you read some of the early reviews, like a major, not all of them complain are criticizing the movie for this. But like almost every review talks about how about how uh, about the stoner logic of the narrative. Okay. About how the about how the pieces don't necessarily connect like it's the comparisons to the long goodbye and *The big lebowski have been made but that they see the critics seem to imply that there's even less uh less logic less clarity involved interesting
0: interesting I, i've gotten more and more i don't know if this is is uh, it telling of where i'm going kind of as a, a cinephile i've become less and less interested in watching trailers or seeing anything or reading Uh anything about movies that I'm definitely going to go see. Right, Like even with the Star Wars trailer, episode seven trailer that just came out, I was very reluctant to even watch that because I know I'm going to see it. And um, I don't know, with with trailers, trailers do give away a lot of things and it also creates a a false sense of hype. I can think of how I felt watching the Master trailer and I was like so fucking psyched. And I think that that is that, that's that narrative, that's that experience that you spin in your head. You think that it's going to be fucking fantastic. And
2: if you you have that expectation,
0: it, it hurts.
2: Uh, it goes back to the expectations versus reality box that I was talking about with you on the podcast with Ken regarding Tusk. When there is there is a movie coming out from a filmmaker that you love you and you you marry what you know about that filmmaker's body of work with what you know about the current project, you immediately start writing and directing your perfect Greg Sadashini mm-hmm. version of the movie right. in your head. And when you go to sit down in the theater and watch it... The movie has two options. It can either give you exactly what you want, or it can give you something different. Yeah. And beca- and because Paul Thomas Anderson is not Greg Sadoshini, it's probably going to be something different. <laughs> and and it, like you have to sit there and deal with it for two and a half hours. <laughs> this is a return to length for PTA. It's two and a half hours. And it, if you're if you're disappointed, you might sit there and stew. If you're not, if, <laughs> and if you if you're accepting of what he's got to give you, it might be an enlightening. Exp- yeah. yeah.
0: Arguably, I'm going to be looking for a, a better version of a Greg Sadashini movie, which <laughs> will never happen, I guess. One day. P.T. Ander- Anderson will never fulfill that that hope. <laughs> How do you fight that though? How do you we fight that on a Ukrainian? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's
0: how all my movies start. Yes. Uh, how do you? How do you fight that though? How do you fight this? This perfect movie that's in your mind. You you do something that I that I used to do too. Um, you read the scripts too. So well,
2: no, no, no no not 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 always. Tusk and the Hateful Eight are very much exceptions. I read Hateful Eight because I didn't think it was happening, uh, and I read Tusk because. The last Kevin Smith film that had been released. Wait, fuck. Let me let me figure out. This is complicated. Let me figure <laughs> out how to formulate this sentence. <laughs> this
0: is the first I, podcast you're actually drinking on. Jesus Christ.
2: It, it's so it's so totally is not. <laughs> <laughs> I read Tusk because it was the first uh, Kevin Smith film to be released that he had written himself since the release of Zack and Miri Make a right. Porno, which is when he had his implosion or whatever you want to call it. Right. I don't count Red State in that because, as I've said before, he wrote it like at the same time as Zack and Miri, basically. Yeah. So this, is, this was the first Kevin Smith film written by the new Kevin Smith. Gotcha. And because the premise was so out there, I was just curious. I right. had to know how good it was going to be. Right.
0: So how do you fight it then? How do you fight this expectation in yourself do you always keep an open mind you tell yourself before you go see it oh um you know i i'll be open to anything i'm not going to try to apply my joseph william lewis uh perfect movie on top of it how do how do you fight it
2: well i tell you greg it's a learning curve because over the past year w- with movies that i've been very excited about i've noticed that that th- this is something i've had to grow out of when you're sitting there watching a movie and it's not your version of the movie, you cannot sit there and be angry the entire movie. (laughs) (laughs) I experienced that. I went earlier this year, I went to go see the grand Budapest hotel, which is a, which is a very good movie, but it is my least favorite Wes Anderson movie. After seeing it a couple of times, it's still my least favorite. Yeah. But, the second time I watched it, I enjoyed it. The first time I watched it, I sat there wanting it to be the Royal Tenenbaums for right. two hours. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's another that's another podcast that we can definitely have about Wes Anderson's. Um
2: for uh, sure, uh, yeah. Are you are you a Wes Anderson fan?
0: <laughs> I am, but I do have some reticence. I I did want to talk to um you know uh, James David Patrick, the guy that does all the um, Bond age stuff, the James Bond stuff. Yeah. Um, he and I have been talking about revisiting because I personally absolutely loathe Darjeeling Limited, and he absolutely really? thinks it's his best movie. So I, I want to. I want to I want to revisit it. I'm interested yeah. in revisiting it because I only saw it once in theater. So, right. no, but but I think that there is a criticism that would be made for for Wes Anderson's um mm-hmm. more recent career versus, you know, the people that kind of grew up on him in Rush Hour uh, of Rush
2: Hour. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see his rush. Uh, oh, man, with, uh, I do not understand the words that are coming out
1: of your mouth.
0: <laughs> cut to a cut it's to like a Rolling Stone speaker. song. Yeah, Oof. yeah, yeah. Oof. but uh, with Rushmore and and Ball Rocket and stuff like that. I think that's interesting yeah. because there are people that are very much P.T. Anderson people that you know grew up with you know the the Boogie Nights and and Magnolia and they have not found the way to kind of translate. To his most recent work, and it's similar with Wes Anderson. Maybe we Man. can get uh, Paul W. S. Anderson in here. The people that are only into like shopping and what what what, what was another early movie that he did um, before he did Resident Evil, but yeah, like event, yeah, like <laughs> Event Horizon, like there were those Event Horizon. <laughs> audience members yeah. that said fuck Resident Evil 5 I'm yeah. not gonna see that
2: yes. I, what I was saying was did I just throw out Hollow Man that's totally Beerhoven. isn't it
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> just gonna, I was gonna I was gonna gloss over it man I was gonna gloss over it
2: well I had to call myself out because <laughs> someone out there I don't know who but they would know oh they're gonna
0: lambast your fucking uh, your twitter your, your twitter uh,
2: profile <laughs> with that more like toasted shit so this guy
1: doesn't know talking about
2: <laughs> but I got one more question to ask you. Do it. Okay. There's one point near the end of The Master that each time I've watched it has baffled me more, and this time was no different. Uh, At the end of the movie, Lancaster has relocated to England, and there's this very peculiar scene where Freddy is sleeping in a movie theater, and someone... And brings and the theater attendant brings him a phone and it's a phone call from Lancaster asking him to come to England and he right. wants him to bring him some cools when he does because right. they don't sell them over there. <laughs> okay, the phone call ends and then it seems to cut to a shot of Freddy waking up in the theater or or not waking up but still, <laughs> still asleep.
0: Right, right. Okay,
2: and then we see him go to England and he gets into this big room with Lancaster and Peggy and... I'm trying I'm trying to remember, Lancaster specifically makes verbal reference to having called him because he's gonna tell him where they met in a past life. Right. But I believe Freddie references that phone call as being a dream. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you parse that? Like
0: I, I didn't put it together until you said that actually.
2: Like is this is this more of a dream right did that did that phone call actually happen because uh, the because if it did the way it's shot seems to imply otherwise right
0: so whether it brought him to England and England really happened mm-hmm. or whether or are you saying that it all could be a dream
2: uh, it, it all could be a dream yeah. or it could or it could all given the spiritual implications at the end of magnolia this could all totally be real
0: right interesting yeah.
2: interesting and i don't know i don't i don't have an answer to this question
0: shit why would you bring it up if you don't have an answer <laughs> <laughs>
2: Why would he make this movie if he doesn't have any? Exactly. Fucking yeah.
0: P.T. Anderson. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much for, for being on here, man. I've, I've always enjoyed our conversations, and I always like ke- hearing you on podcasts for more than uh, three minutes.
2: <laughs> well, if you want to hear me on podcasts for three minutes or less every week, <laughs> Smoke Gets In Your Ears is available at gobbledygeekpodcast.com. We're up to season five of yes. Mad Men right now, and we're having lots of fun. Nice, Great, great, great show. So glad it's given me the opportunity to see the show for the first time absolutely. you can uh, follow me on twitter at toasted schizo that's toasted s-c-h-i-z-o you can also subscribe to me on youtube at youtube.com slash toasted schizo Please watch Norisville. It's it's not as complicated as the Master, but it's worth your time. It's about
0: the same exact themes.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Looking for some look longing for something in your life when it's totally defunct.
0: Absolutely. You can't be accused of a filmmaker who doesn't think deeply about their art.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks,
0: Joe. I appreciate it, man.
2: No problem. Thanks for talking to me, man. Talk Good to you night. soon, man. Definitely. Peace. Bye.